How many of you, when you're doing a difficult task, appreciate a detailed set of instructions? Raise your hand. Most of you? Okay. I know I do. When I buy something or, or Leslie buys something that has to be put together, which, by the way, is a difficult task for me, I not only like a, a detailed set of instructions to walk me step by step through how that certain something needs to be assembled, but I like pictures as well. I like pictures of the proper screw to use on each step and a picture with arrows showing me exactly how each of the pieces are to be attached. I even like each piece to have a sticker with a number on it so I can make sure I'm assembling the right pieces together. Any of you like that in here or is that just me? All right, a few of you. How many of you like to just wing it? Raise your hand. Any of y'all in here just wing it? Some brave folks. Yeah, Brent, that doesn't surprise me back there. Yeah, not me. No, I need a, a detailed set of instructions. Without them, I feel completely lost. Well, guess what? That's what Paul provides for us. In our passage, we are going to look at today and in the one for next week. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 16. We are almost finished with our study of 1 Corinthians. Can you believe it? We have today and we have uh, one sermon next week and then we're done. We started this book back in October of last year. So it's taken us a full year to get through this book, but I, I, I hope you've been blessed by studying through this book. I know I have. But before closing out the, this letter here, Paul gives his readers a detailed set of instructions at the end of this book. He, he stressed throughout the book the importance of living fruitful and holy lives. And now Paul is going to give a number of instructions on how to do just that. Now, chapter 16, if you read it sometime this week, you'll notice it's a change of pace from the previous chapter. Am I right? After explaining for 57 verses what awaits those in Christ, after camping out for most of the previous chapter in the future, talking about how Christ's physical and bodily resurrection in the past guarantees the future resurrection of all believers, Paul brings his readers back to the present at the end of this chapter in verse 58. And he gives them a clear command of what they're to be doing between now and then, then being the time when Christ returns. He says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says... Therefore, consequently, in light of the fact that you're going to experience this future resurrection, you should now, at present, be steadfast. Remember we talked about last week what that word means. That word means to be established, to even be sitting. Paul says you are to take your seat on the truth of the resurrection. You are to be fixed settled and seated upon it. But then, Paul says, not only that, 
but you are to also be abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul says, stand firm, but then he says, get to work and work hard. Bear down, purposefully overdo it. Go above and beyond for the Lord. Abound in the work of the Lord. And that's how he ends chapter 15. Now, to be honest with you, when I finished chapter 15, I thought to myself, chapter 15, verse 58, would have been a fitting end to this letter. When I read chapter 16, to be honest with you, when I first read it, I thought, boy, what an anticlimactic end to this book. I mean, how can you top chapter 15? Well, I don't think you can, and Paul doesn't try here. Instead, he shifts gears. I mean, listen to the contrast of these two chapters. He goes from talking about the glorious resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of those who are in him to talking about an offering that he is collecting for a certain group of believers. He goes from talking about that glorious day when we'll be forever changed and transformed into the image of Christ to talking about a collection of money for believers. He says, death is swallowed up in victory at the end of chapter 15. And then he says, now concerning a collection for the saints in chapter 16. What a contrast, right? But then I thought to myself, you know what, isn't that characteristic of God's word? I mean, his word can be dealing with something glorious one minute and ordinary the next. His word deals with both the dynamic and the everyday, the magnificent and the practical. And Paul does that here. Chapter 16, he moves from the mountaintop of our future resurrection to the blacktop streets of our present existence. He ends chapter 15 by talking about the importance of us living each day with that day in mind, that future day, that resurrection day. He says at the end of chapter 15, though you will one day be changed and be given a body fit for that existence, right now you got to live out the rest of your life in this existence for God abounding in the work of the Lord. And in chapter 16, verses 1 through 12, Paul explains and shows and illustrates to his readers how to do just that, how to abound in the work of the Lord. First, Paul shows us that to abound in the work of the Lord, one must be willing to give to God's work. Give to God's work. Look at verses 1 through 4, chapter 16. Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. In this passage, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of an offering that he is collecting for the Christians in Jerusalem. You know, life was not easy for those in the first century, those believers in the first century church. We think we have it tough today. We, we got nothing on them. Life was tough. 
for the first century church, especially in Jerusalem. At this time, this church had fallen on hard times. There was famine in the land, overpopulation in the city, and on top of all that, they were being persecuted. So there were some hurting believers in that church. So Paul takes up a collection for them. Now, some don't like focusing on this subject of collection and, and offering. You, uh, you get really, some of you get really antsy when, when it's brought up, maybe due to some negative experiences that you've had in the past. And I, I really do believe that some pastors and churches have brought this on themselves. I mean, there have been a lot of abuses that have occurred in the church when it comes to money, and that's not right. But we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater, can we? Paul says this is where the work of the Lord begins. You want to abound in the work of the Lord? Let's talk about the collection. Why? Because like it or not, God uses money to make ministry happen. He does. Through the sacrificial giving of believers, God's kingdom advances. And guess who benefits from that? Those using the money for ministry, but also those giving money in support. And I've seen that play out time and time again. Both benefit. You benefit when you give sacrificially, but the ministry also benefits as well. It's a, it's a win-win. Now, there's a common question that people often ask when discussing the topic of giving, and it's this. How are we to give? What are some practical principles for giving? Well, Paul gives us several here. Let's take a moment and let's look at these principles for giving. First, he tells us to give out of obligation. Again, look at verse 1. Paul says, as I directed, focus on that word directed there, the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Paul says, as I directed or ordered the churches to give, it's commanded. We are to give to support God's kingdom work. And this is not just a command for the wealthy. It's not. It's a command for everyone. Paul says, I told the Galatians to do it, and now it's your turn, Corinthians. You are to be giving like everyone else. Everyone is supposed to give, so give out of obligation. Paul also says, give regularly. He tells the Christians at Corinth, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, some have used this verse to say that believers have to give weekly. I allow for freedom here, okay? Some of you give bi-weekly, some of you give monthly, and that's fine. The point is, you should be giving regularly. Giving is not just a one-time deal, but it is to take place on a regular basis. We try to remind you monthly when we give a report of what's given that the giving of your financial resources is to be a regular act of worship. It is. So give regularly. Also give proportionally. Paul says, as he may prosper. In the NIV it says, in keeping with his income. In other words, the more we are blessed, the more we should be a blessing. Now again, 
That doesn't get you with, with less off the hook. You should be giving as well, but it's proportional. You should also give sacrificially. You may say, well, where do you find that, Graham? Well, look at the end of the previous chapter. And look at the title of this sermon. We are to be abounding in the work of the Lord. We are to be, like we said last week, purposefully overdoing it in our service to God. Does that include giving? You bet it does. We're to go above and beyond in our giving. This is a key component in God's kingdom work. So we are to be giving sacrificially to support his work and to advance his kingdom. So to abound in the work of the Lord, we are to give to God's work. We also need to abound in the work of the Lord. We need to have vision. Have vision. Believers, do you have a plan to make an impact in your home and in your neighborhood and in your workplace for Christ? You should. God has called you first and foremost to represent him in his world. Therefore, we need to have a plan on how to make such an, a, an impact. Paul says in verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. Now, some of you are saying, well, what does that have to do with that? You know, what does that have to do with having vision? Well, all Paul's really saying here to these guys is, hey, I'm going to come to you, but I've got to stop in Macedonia first. I've got plans to go to Macedonia, and then I'm going to get to you. And I don't want to make a big deal out of this passage because Paul doesn't hear. That's not his intent. It's just a note to let them know that he's coming. But when I read this, I was reminded of the fact that Paul was a man who was forever planning. He was always strategic, always planning. There was always a new objective, always more that he desired to do for the Lord. While he was ministering where he was, he was making plans on where he would be next. If anyone abounded in the work of the Lord, it was Paul. Folks, is your life ordered in this way? Some of you say, well, no, but I'm not a minister, a missionary like Paul. Yes, you are. You are. We all are. Christ called all of us as we are going throughout our daily lives to seek out Christ's followers and to make disciples. So, because that's the case, believers, what's your game plan to do that? What's your game plan to make an impact for Christ? You know what? Many don't have one. They say, well, you know, if the topic comes up, I'll wing it. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 26? He says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. In other words, run your race with purpose. Have a vision on how to impact your world for Christ. On top of giving to God's work and having vision, Paul says, to abound in the work of the Lord, one must be flexible. Yes. Verses 6 through 7. Paul says, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you when I come, if the Lord permits. Notice the words perhaps and permits. Paul had his plans, but he was flexible. Though it's good to have a plan, 
Though it's good to be people of vision, it's important that we don't anchor those plans in concrete. Sometimes God redirects, doesn't he? And we must allow for that. Paul had some great plans in ministry, didn't he? But not all of them happened. There were times when he wanted to go somewhere and do something and it didn't happen. That should tell us something. Listen, we may have plans and they may be good and biblical, but they don't happen. We got to be flexible. I've known of people who wanted to plant a church. Good people. Planting a church is a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's good and biblical, but it didn't happen. Paul had plans to go certain places and to minister to certain people, and God closed the door. Why? We don't know all the time, other than he wanted Paul elsewhere. So believers, don't get discouraged if a plan of yours doesn't come to pass. Just look for another open door for ministry. I can tell you this, though I don't know specifically the ins and outs of everything that, that God's going to do in your life and the way he's going to use you, I do know this. I do know that all of us believers are called to be ministering somewhere. So be flexible. Keep your eyes open. Also, to abound in the work of the Lord, we need to commit to excellence. I hate it when people refer to church as an extracurricular activity. Like it's something that is to be done when we have the time, if we have the time. God doesn't want you to serve him with what you have left, if you have anything left. He wants your best. He wants you to commit to serve him with excellence. Look at what Paul says in the first part of verse 6. He says this, And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. You know, Paul had a lot of places that he needed to be, but he wasn't like the UPS man trying to get in and out as quickly as possible. Why? Why did he wish to stay the winter with them and a, and a year and a half with them the first time? Why did he stay a year here and several years there? Why? Because he was committed to excellence. And Paul knew that meant investing in people. He wanted to be a part of a work that was deep and lasting. And he knew that that took time. Believers, how do you view your service to God is it something you do when you have time, if you have time? Or are you giving God your best? Are you committed to excellence? Are you investing in people the way Paul invested in people? There are folks in this room this morning and some who are not here this morning who are, who are desperately in need of someone to invest in them in this way. There are people in this community who need this kind of investment as well. So commit to excellence. Fifth, to abound in the work of the Lord. To purposefully overdo it in our service to Him, we must get to work immediately. Remember one summer when I was in college, I was applying for a job and the employer asked me, when can you start? And I kind of hesitated for a minute and was saying, well, I may need a week here and this and this and that. And he responded with, listen, if you want to commit to work here, 
you got to get to work immediately. That's what God wants from us as well. He does. You remember Jesus' response to the man who wanted to say goodbye to those in his home before following Jesus? Jesus said, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. Once you've given your life to to the Lord, God wants you to get to work. See, some of you have made a commitment to serve the Lord, but you're still in the break room. Years have gone by and you've not yet clocked in. Then there have been some of you who have clocked out on break and have not gone back to work. Paul was constantly serving the Lord. Even when he had plans to go elsewhere, he was busy serving where he was until it was time to go. In this passage, though Paul expresses a desire to go to Corinth, notice what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work is open to me. Paul says, I want to be where you are, but until that time comes, I'm going to be busy serving in Ephesus because there's a wide door of ministry that's open to me. You know, many of us have a tendency to become discontent pretty quickly when it comes to ministry. Even when there's fruitful ministry taking place. That's why many of us clock out. We tire of things easily and often want to move on to the next best thing when what God wants most from us is for us to stick it out where we are and to serve Him. He wants us to get busy, get to work, and He wants us to keep working. He wants us to keep serving. He wants us to keep doing the last thing that He's called us to do. Also, to abound in the work of the Lord, we must accept opposition. Look at verse 9 again. Paul says, For a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. By this time in Paul's ministry, he knew that where there was a work to be done, where the door was open for ministry, that's also where there was serious opposition. Sure, you've heard this said before, and you know you're doing what God has called you to do when you experience opposition, and I believe that to be true. In fact, I would go as far as to say this that if you're serving in an area where you have no challenges, no headaches, no opposition, you need to seriously question whether or not you're being obedient to abound in the work of the Lord. You need to seriously question whether or not you are purposefully overdoing it in your service to Him. There are many believers today that are are looking for an easy place to minister, a place to serve where there's minimal commitment and minimal conflict. That may be what you have your heart set on this morning. Let me warn you, that may not be the place where God's doing a great work where he needs his faithful laborers. Here's the last point. To abound in the work of the Lord, to purposefully overdo it in our service to him, we must be willing to work as a team. This is wonderfully illustrated in verses 10 through 12. Look at what Paul says. He says, 
when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. When many think of Paul, they picture him as this sort of larger-than-life spiritual superhero, a one-man show who is in need of no one or nothing. Listen, nothing can be further from the truth. Paul had a lot of help along the way. There were a lot of churches that needed his assistance, and he could not be everywhere at once. So he often would appoint faithful men, many of whom he had discipled to go and to minister in his place. And in this passage, he informs the Christians at Corinth that Timothy is on his way to them and that Apollos will be with them when he gets the chance. So while Paul is hung up in Ephesus, he relies heavily on his teammates for assistance. One thing that made Paul successful in ministry, among other things, was his ability to delegate. Paul was excellent at delegation. He often multiplied his efforts by training faithful men to go and to serve where he couldn't. Also notice that Paul looked out for those on his team, didn't he? He knew the Corinthians were a rough bunch. So he told them to go easy on Timothy, and he also acts as Apollos' spokesperson, giving them an explanation for his absence. Paul was a team player. Now what do we learn from this illustration? Well, I'll tell you. We learn that we need one another and we need to be needed. Many today have wrongly assumed that this Christian life is all about me and God and no one else. Not true. Folks, we need one another. Think about where you are spiritually. Did you get there by yourself? No. Others were involved in your salvation. And others have been involved in your growth and godliness. And guess what? You also need the help of others, and they need your help to make a significant contribution in God's kingdom work. Believers, we need to develop a team mentality if we're going to abound in the work of the Lord, if we're going to make an impact in this community as a church. Listen, apart from God's grace and apart from His appointed people, you cannot be who God has called you to be and cannot minister in the way He has called you to minister. We need one another. So I want to encourage you to avoid having this Lone Ranger view of the Christian faith. Avoid the mistake that says you can be who God has called you to be and do what He's called you to do all by yourself just not true so work as a team closing let me say this maybe you're here this morning you've been sidetracked spiritually for some time maybe you at one time were running the race well abounding in the work of the Lord purposefully overdoing it in your service to him but you got sidetracked somewhere along the way Listen, God 
has given us his word, which functions, among many other things, as a roadmap for our lives. He's not simply told us what he expects from us, but he's given us a detailed set of instructions and illustration after illustration in his word to serve as a guide to get us there. If you feel lost this morning, if you've taken a wrong turn somewhere along the way, it's time to get back on track and get busy living for God and the way you do it is with this right here. You feel lost spiritually? Does God feel distant? Let me ask you, where does your time alone with him rank on your list of priorities? You spending time in this book? Are you reading it? Are you studying it? Are you seeking answers from it? Are you applying it to your life? Are you allowing what's found in here to shape this right here and guide and direct this right here? Believers, your answers are here. I know you've heard that a thousand times. Let me make it a thousand and one. Your answers are in here. In this book, we learn what God expects from us. In this book, we learn about who He is and who we are in light of who He is. And we learn about who He's called us to be and what He's called us to do and how to get there in here. In here. Maybe you're here this morning, you're realizing for the first time in your life that you've never been on track spiritually. You don't even know where the starting line is. For the first time in your life, the light bulb has come on. That's the Spirit of God, by the way. For the first time in your life, you want to be who God has called you to be, but you don't know where to start. I'll tell you where. It starts at the cross. It starts with salvation. Before you can be who God has called you to be, the Bible says you must have a change of allegiances in your life. You must turn from self to Savior. You must be saved. Up to this point in your life, you've been running your race on your own, apart from and opposed to God. Scripture tells us that that path is sinful and deserving of death. For you to be at peace with God, for you to begin to run the race that He has called you to run, you have to admit your sinfulness and your need, and you have to turn your allegiances over to Him. You have to admit that you're in need of what only God can give and you have to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You have to turn from your sins and turn to God and give your life to Christ so that you can have a right standing with Him before you can begin to run this race that we've been talking about this morning. So if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, I pray today be the day of your salvation. Today be the day that allegiances change. Today be the day that you make Christ Lord. Let's pray.